Alright, let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, verse 13 to verse 22. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, you blind guides, which say, Whoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing, but whoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. You fools and blind. For what is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. You fools and blind. For what is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, swears by it and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, swears by it and by him that dwells therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him that sits there. Father, open our understanding as we consider these words of your son that are spoken and are as relevant today as they ever were. Help us this, as we read these words and think about them. Help us to realize we're hearing and thinking about and reading the very words of God that are for us today. And please give us understanding that we might understand the meaning of these words, Lord. That we might glorify you and be changed by what we do. In Jesus' name. Well, this week, if you were to go and buy some tickets for the Eccles Theater, and go to see a show there at the Eccles Theater. I know there's a play coming up. Actually, I can give a little fun for it. Sierra Klein is actually in the play. It's called Jane Eyre. Um, I don't know when it is, maybe next year. The 14th and 19th of February. Oh, next month. <laughs> well, if you were to go buy those tickets and you were to go to the Eccles Theater next month to see that play, guess what you would see? You would see a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> you would see a bunch of hypocrites. You see, the Greek word for an actor is hypocrite. We've taken the Greek word for actor and we've carried it over into English and it's lost the original meaning in English. But the original meaning was hypocrite. So if you were to go to that play, you'd see a bunch of hypocrites. The Greek word is a broken down compound of hypo and crisis, which means you're under separation or division. A separation between reality and unreality, a division between appearance and actuality. What you see when you go and see that play, you won't be seeing Jane Eyre, you'll be seeing Sarah acting like Jane Eyre. There's a separation between division and reality. Uh, one, of the earliest, one of the early Christian writers, Clement of Alexandria, described a hypocrite this way. A hypocrite is someone who has an outward sign with no inward quality to correspond. An outward sign with no inward quality to correspond. And nobody minds a hypocrite when it's understood that the hypocrite is an actor who's acting, right? You don't mind going to see someone's naked. 
Only minds a hypocrite when it's understood. The hypocrite is acting, but nobody likes a hypocrite. When what is unreal is attempting to pass as real. Nobody likes a hypocrite that way. Now, if you go to certain religious places, you will see a bunch of hypocrites. If you go to some religious places, you will see a bunch of hypocrites. They're actors. And the difference between going to the theater and going to some of those religious places is that at those religious places, they are convincing others that what is unreal is real, and they've even convinced themselves. The actors have convinced themselves that what is unreal is real. Now, in the remaining part of this chapter that we've just read, Jesus attacks hypocrisy. Jesus attacks the Pharisees and the scribes, and you'll, did you notice the repetition of the word hypocrite? This is what he's calling them out on. He's saying, you're hypocrites. Jesus has been warning the people about the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at the earlier part of the chapter. In verse 1, Jesus is not directly addressing the scribes and the Pharisees. He's speaking to the people about them. In verse 2, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees. He uses the same phrase that he uses the rest of the chapter. The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. But he says, watch out for them. He warns the people about the scribes and the Pharisees. He warns them about what they do. He says, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do in verse 3. Because this is what they do. They say and they don't do. What they say and what they tell you to do, they themselves don't do. They're hypocrites. And And Jesus turns from talking to the people about the Pharisees, and he turns directly to the Pharisees and the scribes, and he starts calling them out. Maybe I'm too loud. He turns to address them directly. And brothers and sisters, do you notice the sense of anger in the, in the words of Jesus? Jesus is composed here. It's pretty intense, isn't it? Why is Jesus so angry about this? Why is Jesus so angry about scribes and Pharisees and their hypocrisy? Because of the devastating consequences of their hypocrisy. Religious hypocrisy has devastating consequences. You go to a theater to watch a show, and there's no devastating consequences. You, you pay your money, you see the play, you laugh a little, you cry a little, you go home, no one's worse for it. But if you go to a church, if you go to a religious institution, and there you find actors, and they're trying to pass as real what is unreal, and people are convinced by it, there's devastating consequences that you're going to see. And Jesus is angry, rightfully so. Now, there's no sense that he's lost control of himself, that there's no self-control in Jesus. There's no sense of malice. He doesn't just hate the Pharisees and is glad for an opportunity to be upset with them. He's genuinely upset with their hypocrisy. And he's not indifferent to their hypocrisy. He's not indifferent to what they're doing and how they're destroying their own lives and the lives of others. Winston Churchill once said, and I think truthfully, that a man is only as great as that which he gets angry about. A man is only as great as that which you get angry about. What that means is none of us are great. That's what we've talked about before. Because we get angry about all sorts of stupid things. But Jesus 
is great, and God is great. And Jesus is angry about this. J.C. Ryle says this, Let us mark the language of Jesus well. It teaches a solemn lesson. It shows us how utterly abominable the spirit of the scribes and the Pharisees is in God's sight, in whatever form it may be found. Brothers and sisters, just kind of try to grasp the moment here. This is Jesus' last public teaching before the people. In the book of Matthew, we're not going to have any more public teaching. This is it. This is how Matthew wants to leave it. Jesus' last public teaching is a warning to the people about the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And his warning echoes down throughout the ages. It's relevant for all ages. It's relevant for us today. Do you not think that the scribes and the Pharisees' hypocrisy lives on in a different form today? Don't you think that there's a lot of religious hypocrisy today with devastating consequences sweeping away how many countless people by those lies? And by, by taking what is unreal and passing it off as real. Of course, Jesus hopes too that some Pharisees will be saved, that they'll turn from their hypocrisy. He calls them out. He's warning them. He says, Woe is you! Like prophets before him, Jesus delivers the woes from God. Of course, God sends prophets to deliver these warnings in mercy and love, because those who hear those warnings will turn. If God didn't want them to turn, he might have just sent a destruction without warning. But he gives these warnings so that they may turn. You'll remember one of the cheapest of Pharisees at last became a Christian. Saul of Tarsus. And we have, uh, our New Testament is full of his letters, right? And Saul of Tarsus was one of the Pharisees that Jesus says, woe is you. And now we love reading his letters in our New Testament. It changed. Isn't that wonderful? You can change. God saves these hypocrites. He warns us about them. Each one of the warnings, each one of the woes, and there's there's seven or eight of them in this chapter, depending on if you include verse 14. Some of your Bibles might not include verse 14. Uh, the reason is it's because some of the early manuscripts of Matthew don't have them, but verse 14, the saying of Jesus here is found in both Mark and Luke, so it is a genuine saying of Jesus, and we will I'm going to be keeping it here. We'll be commenting on it this morning. So, there's eight woes that Jesus gives. And each one of these woes that he gives to the scribes and the Pharisees is an illustration about what he said about them earlier. That they say and do not. That they claim to be doing something, but they're not actually doing it. And each one illustrates that saying of Jesus' in verse 3 of the chapter. What the Pharisees claim to be, before the people, what the scribes claim to do before the people is not real. And like that cursed fig tree, remember when Jesus, when he was going to Jerusalem, he saw a fig tree that had all these leaves on it. It bore every appearance that there would be fruit on it. And when he went to see if there was fruit on it, there wasn't any. And so he cursed it. This is exactly what's happening here. The scribes and the Pharisees appear righteous. They appear to do all the things they say they're doing. And they do not, they're hypocrites, they're like the first victory that Jesus is now pronouncing the woes. We're going to look at what these woes say. Verse 13. What is the first word in the verse? At least in King James here. The word, the verse starts with the word but. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. The but connects 
what Jesus says in verse 13 with what he just said in the, the two verses before and contrast them. What went before in verse 11 and 12? Jesus just said, He that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. So he connects it with that and contrasts it. But the thing is, the Pharisees are lacking humility. The Pharisees are those who are exalting themselves, who are not being the servants of men, who want to be great in the eyes of the people, who love the seats, the uppermost seats at the feasts, they love the chief seats in the synagogues. They love to be called rabbis, you'll remember. And so Jesus says, you know, those who humble themselves will be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. They were intoxicated by the glory that they received from their little kingdom. Now in saying that, I want to draw our attention to something most important. A common error that people make in thinking about the Pharisees. The common error that people make when thinking about the Pharisees is that they envision the Pharisees to be these really mean and nasty guys who are uninterested in spiritual matters. Have you ever thought of a Pharisee like the sheriff of Nottingham? <laughs> Pharisees were these mean and nasty guys. They didn't care about the poor and the needy. They didn't care about anybody but themselves. They didn't even care about God. All they cared about was themselves. And they were just using religion as a uh, way to uh, hide behind so that they can accomplish all their greedy ends. And where does that come from? Well, one might say, well, Eli, that comes from Jesus' own sayings about them, right? <laughs> Jesus says they're vipers. Jesus says they're greedy. Jesus says they're hypocrites. Jesus says all their works they do to be seen of men. So isn't that an accurate picture? And the difficulty about that, and the problem here, is that we're dealing with two completely different levels when we're talking about the Pharisees. When we say that they're not mean and nasty, and they're you know they're not uninterested in spiritual things, but when we also say they're vipers and they're mean and nasty, we're talking on two completely different levels. First of all, there's the higher level that is the level that God sees, and there's the lower level, and that's the level that men see. Jesus' words. When we read Jesus' words and we hear Jesus say, they're a bunch of vipers, they're a bunch of greedy people, they just love their own glory, they don't love God, they're unrighteous. When we read Jesus' words, we assume he's talking about this lower level. We think, oh, that means in the eyes of men, they're these really nasty guys. Jesus is saying, this is what they are in the eyes of God. This is the way that God sees them. But this isn't the way that the people see them. And this isn't even the way that they see themselves. Let me illustrate. Suppose you were to ask your average religious person, let's say maybe you're above average, someone who's religious and prides himself in being religious. If you were to ask that person, do you consider yourself to be a good person? What do you think they'd say? Say yes. And do you think they mean that? Are they sincere? <laughs> of course they're sincere. They really think that they're good. Now, that person, when they say that they're good, they don't mean that they're perfect, right? If you were saying, well, are you, do you consider yourself to be perfect? They'd say, oh, no, I'm definitely not perfect. I mean, I, I sin and I do bad things, but I'm not a perfect person, but I am a good person. I'm a good person because I do these good things, and I don't do these bad things, and, you know, my good deeds are literally bad. So, 
you ask this person, they think they're good. The thing is, is this person does not think they're evil and, and believe that they're evil and are pretending to be good, right? They're not like, well, I'm really this evil person, but I'm going to tell you that I'm a good person. They've convinced themselves that they're good. They're sincere. And you've got to understand that they have pride in the fact that they're good. Pride is related to work, not to insincerity. Pride is related to the fact that they feel that they are good and that they've done better than others. Some of the most proud people in the world are athletes and professors. And why are they proud? Not because they know they're not special and they're pretending to be special, but because they think that they're special, right? Who are you to talk to me? I won the Pro Bowl last year. <laughs> Who are you to talk to me? I've written 15 books. I've studied more than you'll ever study in your life. Right? And they sincerely believe they're better. The problem is, is they aren't thinking from God's perspective. They're thinking about it from a lower perspective. A quote from F.W. Young. Jesus does not attack the Pharisees for insincerity and feigning goodness, though they knew they were evil. On the contrary, it is because they are so self-righteously convinced of their own goodness that he castigates them. Their blindness sets them in opposition to God. Brothers and sisters, God's law requires absolute perfection. And the conscience that he's put inside your heart, the conscience that he's instilled inside of you, always is telling you to be perfect at all times. And God's law requires perfection. You read the law of Moses, if you want to know what God commands, what God requires of you, you can read the law or you can read Jesus' summary of the law. Is that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a statement of perfection. Did you know what the law of Moses says? That you shall be perfect in the Lord your God. It requires perfection. The law states that explicitly. It says whatever God has commanded, that is what you are to obey. You're not to add to it, and you're not to diminish from it at all. Whatever is commanded. Now, if you were to examine your life in the light of that statement, Whatever God has commanded, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what God requires. Have I done it? No. Have I loved God with all my heart? No. Am I perfect with the Lord my God? No. This is the way God sees. From his perspective and from his level, he's looking at us based upon his righteous law of perfection. God requires perfect righteousness, and in that there is no room for our glory because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Only God is perfect. Only God is righteous. Only God is good. When you look at it that way, you can sincerely believe you're not a good person. But if you look at it from a lower level, the way man sees too often, you don't believe that God requires perfect righteousness at all, right? God doesn't require you to be perfect, and neither do I. It's not about being perfect at all. It's just about trying your best. And when you try your best, it leaves room for you to sincerely think you've done good and to sincerely think that you're a good person and to glory in yourself, right? R.T. France writes, Jesus' attack here is not only or even primarily against conscious hypocrisy, but against the faults inherent in the Pharisaic approach to religion, even at its best. The Pharisaic approach to religion is simply this, that God does not require perfection. And since God does not require perfection, I am a good person. Follow my example. 
So when we, if we look at the Pharisees from that perspective, if we were to see the Pharisees from that perspective, that low level of not perfection, we would probably think they're good. We would think those guys are pious, they're sincere, they do good deeds, they care about God, they're good. But God doesn't look at them from that perspective. God looks at them from the perspective of perfection in his law and says, they're not good. And you know what's even worse? They ignore my law. And why do they ignore my law? Because they're actually deep down not interested in me. They're not interested in my law. They're not interested in righteousness. They're really just interested in their glory. And they fooled themselves into thinking that they're interested in me, my glory, and my law. But they're not. That's why Jesus calls them vipers, even though when he said that, they would have been shocked to hear it, and the people would have been shocked to hear it. Vipers, what do you mean? I do all sorts of good things. Even at its best, the legalistic, pharisaic, less-than-perfection system is an affront to God, and it is hypocrisy. When you pose to be righteous, you're actually not. When you pretend, you pretend that you, you think you are reverent to God, you think you're obedient to his law. You think you respect his law. You don't. You're a hypocrite. You can be stern in your system of legalism. You can be strict. You can be sincere. But the fact that it's a system that's not based on the perfection of God's law means it's not about God at all. Does that make sense? No matter how stern or strict or sincere you may be in your system of human rules. Scholars are realizing today that the Pharisees were like people today. They didn't look nasty and mean. They looked spiritual and good. And in the eyes of the people around them, those guys were the good guys. If you want to know what a Pharisee looked like in the past, just go visit um, any non-Christian religion and go find their brightest, and you'll see what a Pharisee looks like. They look good from a low perspective. But from a high perspective, they don't care about God. They don't care about his law. Jesus' words, therefore, were shocking to people. So what Jesus says next was shocking to all. Look at verse 13. Because this doesn't look what it, this doesn't look like it from a human perspective. Verse 13. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Here's why you're a hypocrite. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourselves, neither do you allow those who want to go in and who are going in from going in. In fact, in the Greek it says you slam the door in your face. You ever try to walk through your door and all of a sudden someone slams the door in your face? That's what Jesus says they're doing. His first point here shows his great concern for the souls of men. And he sees the devastating effects of this hypocrisy. The problem with you guys is you're not going in, you're not getting saved, you're not allowing other people to be saved either. You're, you're deceiving all men who listen to you. And the Pharisees, brothers and sisters, thought the exact opposite. You have to understand, they truly believed that they were in, and they truly believed that they were helping others come in as well. They really believed that. They served the people. Remember in Matthew 5.20, so on the Mount, Jesus says, Unless your righteousness is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Shock. Everyone thought, whoa, what? Aren't they in? Aren't I in if I'm like that? I mean, I'm just trying to be like that. Those guys are so far in the You won't make it, Jesus said. In the Gospel of Luke, 
the parallel passage to this says that the Pharisees had taken away the key of knowledge. And therefore they shut the kingdom of heaven against men. Their teaching was false. Their teaching was false about what? Not that God existed. They taught that well. They taught that Moses was given the law. They taught that well. Their teaching was false because they taught that the law did not require perfection. What does Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount? What does Jesus teach on the Sermon on the Mount? That the law requires perfection? Or yes. Here's the difference. Here's the knowledge that you need to have if you want to be saved. This concerns your soul. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to enter the kingdom of God? You're going to need to know something. Without this knowledge, you can't be saved. You're going to need to know that God requires absolute perfection. A.D. Bruce writes this. The reference is to sincere seekers after God. And the statement is that the scribes were the worst advisors such such persons could go to. Jesus is essentially saying, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're the worst people you can go to to learn about God. Isn't that interesting? Everyone figured they were the best people to go to. Brothers and sisters, it's the same today. If you're interested in being saved and you're interested in going to heaven, maybe God has been stirring your heart for eternal things and you're thinking about your soul and you're concerned about it. Do you want to know how to be saved? The very worst advisors you can possibly go to is any religious teacher who teaches you that God does not require Worst advisor you could possibly get. The effect of their teaching will keep you out of the kingdom of God. So here's their hypocrisy. They appear to help men into the kingdom. They appear to be in the kingdom, but they're not. And their teaching doesn't help men. It actually closes the door. That's the hypocrisy Jesus is talking about. It looks real, but it's not. They appear to be good teachers, but they aren't. They're deceivers who will lead you down the path of death. Look at the next one, verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Of course, what does this mean? Because, again, the Pharisees do not think they're doing that. The Pharisees don't think they're devouring widows' houses. They don't think they're, for a pretense, making long prayers. The law states you shall not steal. So in their mind, they weren't stealing from any widows. How many of you have ever seen the uh, the Disney cartoon Robin Hood? Ever seen that? Remember the sheriff of Nottingham? He goes into the church and he's acting all pious and he's like, "How are you, Reverend? Good to see you. Pray for me." And he's, and he's stealing the money out of the church, uh, you know, offering. But he's doing it in such like a pious way, you know. He knows he's being a crook. That's not what the Pharisees are doing. The Pharisees are not like the sheriff of Nottingham, knowing they're stealing and just praying, and after praying, slipping the widow's money into their pockets. Because remember, God, Christ is speaking from God's perspective, what, what God sees, not what man sees. You see, the, the law requires tithing. The law, right? The law requires tithing. The law requires that everyone in Israel pay tithing. And gives money to the priests and to the temple because the priests didn't have any property of their own. So they would live off the uh, 
sacrifices, and they would live off the giving of the people. And the Pharisees were making sure everybody paid their time. The Pharisees were making sure that everyone was giving their money. In fact, Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, right after saying this saying, tells the story about the widow's money. Remember the poor widow who only has two coins? And she throws those coins into the offering. And Jesus says she's giving more than everybody else. She pays out of her poverty. Right? So we're talking about poor widows. And the Pharisees are making sure everybody pays their tithes, but they're not making sure that this widow is being taken care of. See, if the money belongs to the priests, then why don't the priests take care of the destitute? If you've ever read the book Les Miserables, and Bethany and I are just reading it, but in the first chapter of that book, it feels like it talks about this priest. And, and some people are a little upset with this priest because the government requires that he is paid quite a hefty sum of money. And so they're like, this priest, you know, after, after the French Revolution, so a lot of people are kind of suspicious about the, the government and about the church. They're thinking, yeah, the government requires this priest to have money. And the priest doesn't resist the money. He collects it. But the thing is, the, the book tells us that the priest collects all that money and he gives it away to the poor. Right? He gives it away to the poor. He doesn't just take the poor people's money. He gives it. The question might be, well, why don't the Pharisees and the priests and the scribes teach that the money should be given to the poor? People should be helped with it. Obviously, the widow of the two disciples didn't have too much. And so it's through this, what seems like obedience to God's law. The Pharisees are saying, we need to tithe. That's what God says, we need to tithe. Even the poor widows need to tithe. Have you, have you paid your tithe, poor widow? <laughs> and it looks spiritual, but it's not. And then the Pharisees pray these long prayers, and everyone thinks they're so spiritual, but they aren't. Because if they were, they'd be loving their neighbor as they love themselves. Do you know, George Whitfield said a fascinating thing. George Whitfield was a preacher in the 1700s. He said, you could be damned for your very best prayer. The best prayer you ever prayed can send you to hell. If you pray a prayer to God and you think, man, I am so spiritual. <laughs> such a good prayer. And maybe it was a good prayer. Right? And you start trusting that thing. I'm a good person. I was a good prayer. I'm better than others. People don't pray like that. That prayer can send you to hell. Your best spiritual religious deeds can damn you. Amazing thing. <clears throat> the hypocrisy here is that they're looking spiritual and they're looking like they're obeying God's law, but they're not. It's passing for reality is not reality at all. And Jesus says this sober thing that they shall receive the greater damnation. Let's look at verse 15. Another example of hypocrisy. Again, the Pharisees would never have thought this. You think if they thought that they were making the children of hell, they would keep doing it? No. <laughs> they never would have thought this. In fact, in verse 15, we have, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte or convert. When he's made, you make him twofold more of a child of hell than yourself. They don't think that's how it is. That's Christ speaking from God's perspective and saying what's actually happening. But from men's perspective and from a standard of low of, of not perfection, they say, hey, this is really good. Well, why? What's happening? In their minds, these converts are being redeemed. 
They're traveling land and sea. They're finding these pagans who are who are believing in multiple gods and who are fornicating left, right, and center, who are getting drunk all the time. And these Pharisees come and they redeem them. They teach them about God and they teach them about Moses and they teach them about the law and they teach them about the goodness of staying sober and they teach them about the goodness of being married to one woman. They teach them these things and the person says, hey, I, I'm, I like this. This is wise. This is good. I'm in. I'm convert. And most of them would say, praise the Lord. These people are redeemed. Right? They're redeemed. Yes, by men's standard, they're redeemed. If God does not require perfection, they're redeemed. Right? If God doesn't require perfection, hey, they just went from, you know, bad to better. <laughs> they compass land and sea. That's just a proverbial saying for great zeal. They probably didn't end on both Travel too far. But they had great zeal to do this. They, they thought this was a good thing. If you read their own writings, they, they, their, their missionary motive was actually based on Deuteronomy 6.5, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And they thought to themselves, my goodness, when you love something, when you're glorifying God with everything that you've got, you just want to invite other people to do that too. And so if you're really loving God with all your heart, you're going to be a missionary. This is their attitude. It sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds pious, sounds holy. And it's not zeal that Christ condemns here, but zeal for a false hypocritical cause. So Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4 that the Judaizers were zealous and were trying to make people zealous. And Paul says, you know, zeal is not wrong, but it's certainly wrong when you're a hypocrite and you're not listening to God and it's a false cause. Men are easily impressed by zeal, but zeal is no indicator of truth. That's one of the most unfortunate things. Often people think that that men are speaking truth if they're zealous about it. Right? Not true. Not against zeal. Not an indicator of truth. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says that the Jews are indeed truly zealous for God, but they don't have knowledge. And what's the knowledge they don't have? It's the same knowledge Jesus said that they didn't have and were shutting the kingdom of God for men. It's the knowledge of the righteousness of God through faith. And they're going about to establish their own righteousness, which they never said had to be perfect. No one would be so stupid to try to establish a perfect righteousness on their own, by themselves, by their works. Now the Jews had two kinds of proselytes, actually. They had two kinds of converts. The first kind was called the the convert of the gate. What that means is they converted Gentile pagans to the gate. They didn't actually come in, but they came close. They realized that Judaism was correct, but they just weren't willing to come in. That was a good thing. That was a a step towards the right direction, which the, the Israelites saw. You get a convert of the gate. That would be like Cornelius in the book of Acts. Somebody who's devout, someone who believes in the God of Jews, who prays the God of Jews, and he hasn't actually been circumcised and embraced Judaism himself. And the second kind of convert is what they would call the convert of righteousness. Interesting The convert of righteousness is the convert that actually went through the gate. Notice the words of Jesus here. In order to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to be righteous. And Jesus even uses the, the language of a gate. So there's a gate to get in the kingdom of God, and that gate is righteousness. And the Jews themselves said, there's converts who come around the gate, and there's converts of righteousness who go through the gate into the kingdom of God. I'd like to read you just a, a short passage from the Talmud, their own writing, on what happens when a person becomes a convert of righteousness. 
Very interesting. And insightful. I think it might shock you to hear how pious these guys are. Gives you an idea of what they were thinking. A stranger that comes to be made a proselyte at this time, they say unto him, What do you see that you come to be made a proselyte or a convert? Do you not know that the Israelites at this time are miserable, banished, drove about and plundered, and chastisements have come upon them? And if he says, I know this, but it does not satisfy me, meaning, I know this, but I still want to become a convert, they receive him immediately and make known unto him some of the light commandments and some of the heavy commandments. And they acquaint him with the business of gleanings, the forgotten sheep, the corner of the field left standing, and the poor's tithe. They also inform him of the penalties of the commands, and they say unto him, Now you know that before you came into this way, you did eat fat, and you weren't punished without, without with being cut off. You profaned the Sabbath, and you weren't punished with stoning. But now, if you eat fat, you will be punished with being cut off. And if you profane the Sabbath, you will be punished with stoning. And as they inform him of the penalties of the precepts, so they acquaint him with the giving of the rewards of them, saying unto him, Now you know you that the world to come is not made but for the righteous. And the Israelites at this time cannot receive neither much good nor much punishment. Meaning, this life is not going to be that great, it's not going to be that bad. If the world to come will be good, but you've got to be righteous. But they do not multiply words nor critically inquire of them. If you receive these things, they immediately circumcise them. And if there remain any obstructions, hindering circumcision, they circumcise him a second time. And when he is healed, they will immediately dip him or baptize him. And two disciples of the wise men stand over him and acquaint him with some of the light commands and some of the heavy commands. Then he dips and comes up and is an Israelite in all respects. Give you an idea of how conversion works. Sounds pretty good, right? I mean, they, they emphasize pretty seriously the obedience to the commands. So you realize that before you, now you're not an Israelite yet. You break the Sabbath, no big deal. You get baptized, you get circumcised, you break the Sabbath, you don't get stoned. <laughs> and they tell them about how, did you know the law that you can actually eat from the fields? You know the stuff that's left over? They didn't know that. They didn't tell the Gentiles that. They said, hey, I want you to know when you become an Israelite, you can actually eat from the fields if you're hungry. But you need to know a lot of things. Maybe acquaint them with some of the light commandments, so they don't tell them all, right? But they do say you need to be righteous. Now they think they're righteous, right? You need to be righteous if you're going to get into the kingdom of God. Don't worry, God doesn't require perfection. I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> did they not? Did they get any convert in the second circumcision? That sounds very yeah. scary. <laughs> I don't know how many converts. Perhaps Jesus was referring to this when he said, "You make him twofold a child of power." Jesus is, I don't know exactly if this is the case, but Jesus could be referring to the proselyte of righteousness. You know, you're a child of hell if you're a proselyte of the gate. You're just hanging around the gate of Judaism thinking, this is the truth, but I'm not here. But you're even worse a child of hell if you enter that gate, and now you suddenly bought into that system of phony righteousness and think that you can be saved through your own works. The hypocrisy here is that the Pharisees look like they're about saving men from the glory of God, but they aren't. They're not at all. And brothers and sisters, we need to take God's perspective on life. We need to settle in our hearts once and for all. Cleaning up your life is not salvation, right? 
turning a new leaf and turning from bad to better does not mean you're saved. That is not righteousness in the eyes of God. It makes you a legalist, and that is worse. Because once you enter that gate of the Pharisees, all of a sudden you start thinking sincerely that you're a good person when you're not. You start becoming proud when you shouldn't be. You start ignoring God's law, which requires perfection. You start looking down on other people. It just gets ugly, even if you came from a horrible past. Every religion in the world can boast of these kinds of converts, right? Go to any religion in the world, they can tell you, hey, meet so-and-so. He used to be this really bad, wicked person. Now he's a really devout person. He's in. It shouldn't impress us. Certainly it's good that someone stops getting drunk and doing drugs and pointing. That, that's a good thing. But that's not perfection that God requires. If, if, all, if that's all God requires, what do you need the death of Jesus Christ for? Right? What do you need the cross for? You don't. Jesus could have stayed in heaven and said, just listen to those Pharisees. Brothers and sisters, God requires perfection. Yes, he requires righteousness in order to get in the kingdom of God. And righteousness is sinlessness. Righteousness is blamelessness. And that's something none of us can boast of. None of us have sinlessness. None of us have blamelessness. All of us need salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. What is our testimony as Christians? What is our test? Our testimony is not, hey, I used to be a really horrible guy, and now I became a really great guy, and that's what I'm saying. Right? <laughs> now you can tell someone their story of how God maybe changed your mind. But your true testimony is this. I have received righteousness freely as a gift from God. Jesus Christ has saved my soul. It's not what I've done. Right? It's not, hey, look what I've done. I've turned a new leaf and made it. I walked through that gate. It's about what Christ has done. He gave his life on the cross for us. He took our sin on the cross. He paid the penalty that we deserve so that we can go free. I'm saved because of him, right? It's because of him that I'm saved. And in that way, every Christian has the same testimony. We all bear witness of this wonderful salvation that comes through Christ. I once was lost, but now I'm found because of his amazing grace. I have peace through the blood of his cross. That's our story, isn't it? This is my story. Does that hand go? This is my story to God be the glory. Amen? Amen. Because it's not about us at all. It's about him. That's what the gospel is all about. Sinful people who deserve to go to hell, God in heaven has saved by grace. He gets the glory. And lastly, look at verse 16 to 22. We'll just briefly touch on this. Jesus changes his phrase here. He calls them now blind guides. Verse 16. Woe unto you, blind guides, as opposed to guides of the blind, which is what they used to call themselves. You look at Romans chapter 2. Guide of the blind. And it says in Romans 2.19, Paul says from experience, of course, that they're confident that they're guides of the blind, right? These guys are not thinking they're evil and pretending to be good like the sheriff of the these guys are confident that they're guides to the blind, and Jesus says, you hypocrite, you, you think you're one way, you fooled yourself, you're a hypocrite, you're not what you think you are. You're actually a blind guy. You're not only a deceiver here, Jesus is saying, you're deceived yourself. As Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 13, he says, evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse as time goes on, meaning that it must be pretty bad today, right? Evil men and seducers will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. These evil men and seducers are deceived themselves. 
When you think of evil men and seducers, are you thinking about that from a low level or from a high level? You can think evil men and seducers, oh, watch out for the guys that are nasty and mean like the sheriff of Nottingham. Or you can think an evil man and a seducer from God's perspective could be someone who looks really good, right? That person that everyone thinks is really good and from human perspective he looks good, he's an evil man and a seducer. Why? Because he's deceived and he's deceiving people with a phony righteousness. You gotta think from God's perspective here. Otherwise, Jesus' words don't make sense. Now, what's this all about? The oath taking, swearing by the temple? Well, it's simply this that the Pharisees were actually seeking to remedy a corruption. Okay? That men were making oaths left, right, and center, and the Pharisees had to kind of rope it in and give some guidelines. Because people were arguing. They were arguing over the vows that they made. And they were arguing over the vows they made toward God or for each other. And said, he said that he'd do this. Well, you know, I said it, but I didn't really mean it. You know, priest, I said this to God, but it doesn't really count. Can you give me some guidelines here? And there was a lot of confusion. You probably heard it on a playground if you went to public school, right? You said this. No, no, I didn't. I didn't pinky swear. <laughs> That's what I used to do when I was We didn't pinky, pinky swear. My fingers were crossed. Yeah, exactly. So there's confusion about what am I supposed to do here? And the Pharisees say, let me give us give you some wisdom here. If you didn't say it this way, then you're not. See, the solution depends on the formula of your oath. The formula of your oath. How do you say it like that? <laughs> oh, you said it like that? Yeah, you're off the hook. Oh, you said it like that? You're off the hook. Go and kiss my son. What did you say? Jesus comes to the point. First of all, in his teaching, not just here but elsewhere, all swearing ultimately goes back to God. You cannot make an oath about anything that doesn't go back to God. You're always swearing by the highest thing. No matter what you do. <laughs> because the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. You don't find any refuge there. But Jesus also makes the point here it's not about your formula, it's about integrity. It's about saying it and meaning it and keeping with what you've said, right? In fact, in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, he says, Let your yes be yes in the You say yes to someone, do it. You say no to someone, do it. Don't even bring in oaths at all. It's just that's just tending to evil. It's just you trying to wiggle your way out of being integrous. Don't swear at all. Do what you said. They were childish in behaving like this without moral maturity. Cross my heart, hope to die. Why do kids do that on the... Why do kids do that? Why do they invoke these oaths and argue about them? One, because they fear lying. They fear people are lying to them. So they say, oh, you promise? Think you swear you'll do that? Okay, now I can trust you. But also, they're, they do that because they are afraid of being bound into themselves. So if they say they'll do something, and they don't want to afterwards, and say, well, I'm, I'm invoking out, right? They don't want to be bound. It's childish. It's not mature. It's not moral. And the solution is not to, it, the solution is not to support this system by carefully defining what formula is correct. The solution is to teach integrity. A.D. Bruce writes this, The tendency of the rabbis was to enlarge the sphere of insincere, idle, meaningless speech. Christ's aim was to inculcate absolute sincerity. Always mean what you say. Let none of your utterances be merely conventional generalities. 
So what this reveals, this reveals a lot about the Pharisees. This reveals that they were not thinking morally, not here, in this instant, or about the law. If they were thinking morally, they wouldn't have said these things. And if they were really thinking morally, or if they were really thinking about righteousness, they would realize that righteousness is perfection, and they would confess themselves to be sinners. If they really cared about God's law, they would look at it, and their jaw would drop, and they'd say, woe is me, I am undone. Right? I'm guilty. Can't do it. I fail. Have mercy on me. A sin. If they really cared about righteousness, right? Real righteousness equals confession of sin and being honest. So the hypocrisy here is that they say they're all about righteousness and morality, but they're not. Brothers and sisters, when you think about hypocrisy in closing, do you think about it only in sort of a stereotypical way? A hypocrite is someone who, you know, gets in a big fight with their wife and then comes to church and performs now. <laughs> is that hypocrisy? Sure, that's hypocrisy on a very low level. That's sin and you shouldn't do it, but thank goodness there's forgiveness for sin. But Jesus is not talking about that kind of hypocrisy. Okay? That kind of hypocrisy, putting on a smile at church when you're having a bad day, that kind of hypocrisy doesn't slam the door shut on the kingdom of God, right? The kind of hypocrisy that slams the door in people's faces on the kingdom of God has to do with the hypocrisy that God sees from a higher perspective. When men sincerely think that they are righteous and they fool others to think they're righteous and they fool others to think that they are helping men into the kingdom or that they're looking spiritual, they fool men to think that they're saving men for the glory of God or that they're concerned about righteousness, but they're actually not. That's the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about. That's the kind of hypocrisy that will that will send you to hell. Because it keeps you from confessing your sin and putting your faith in Christ. Jesus is giving us a timeless warning. These are sort of his last public words for us to consider. Jesus is telling us all, you need to realize that God sees perfection. God requires perfection. That's what righteousness is to God. These guys who you think are really good, they're vipers. Jesus is telling us, confess your sin. Admit you're guilty. Don't think that you're going to get in because you've done this good deed or made your life better. And Jesus' ultimate message to all men, which is what the gospel is all about, see perfection, confess that you're not that, and put your trust in the cross. Put your trust in him. Put your trust in his grace. Put your trust in the Savior of sinners, as we sung about today. He came into the world in order to take our sin and our unrighteousness and to give us righteousness as a gift through his blood, through his cross. Do you realize that the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross, when you put your trust in him, that blood makes you righteous apart from any works that you do. Isn't that amazing? When we sing about, you know, non-Christians are confused about the hymns Christians sing, because we sing about being under the blood, washed in the blood, righteous in the blood. What can, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. <laughs> they don't understand that it's not by our good deeds and our efforts that we're right before God. It's through this thing that Jesus did by dying for our sins and by us simply accepting what he's done for us and accepting that gift from God, 
that God actually sees our sins as God. And God looks at us as blameless in his sight. If you're a Christian today, when God looks at you, he sees you as perfect. That's what he requires, and he sees you that way. Perfect. Do you, you grasp how amazing that is? That he sees you as perfect and not as a sinner if you trust in Christ. That's what it's all about. Only then, when you put your faith in the cross and see from God's perspective, then and only then will you not be a true hypocrite. Then and only then will you receive from God the commendation of reality. You're not going to hear from him on Judgment Day. You're a phony. And then and only then, as Peter says, the Apostle Peter and his brother, an entrance shall be supplied unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as a true conduit. Father in heaven, we thank you for this warning from your son. We pray that we would take it to heart. You realize that this is really what the whole issue is. It's not about this uh, stereotypical hypocrisy, God, but it's about this hypocrisy before you. And thank you for so clearly, throughout your word, consistently pointing us back to your law, which requires perfection, which in turn points us to your son. He provides that perfection by his grace. Thank you for everyone here who's saved, who's put their trust in Christ and is not a hypocrite. And you can say to them that they're righteous, not because of what they've done, but because of what you have. Thank you that you get all the glory because of what you have done. We give you glory this morning. Amen. Amen.